BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, we have two, count them, two of California's top executive officers with us, Governor Gavin Newsom and Attorney General Rob Bonta. Looks like when it rains, it pours, Scott. And first up today, we are thrilled to welcome Governor Newsom. He is actually doing double duty this week. Of course, his regular day job as governor. But now uh, he is rolling out a children's picture book about dyslexia. It's called Ben and Emma's Big Hit. Governor Newsom, welcome back to The Breakdown. Great to be with you guys. All right. So this is a children's book about dyslexia. This is something that you've been very open about your personal struggle. Um, I know you write at the end of the book that you learned of this diagnosis at age 10. Can you talk about how you learned of it and and what having that sort of label changed for you, if anything? Yeah, my mom kept it from me uh, for all those years. And I stumbled upon it after school, came home and found a file uh, with uh, a uh, a sort of yearly update on how I was doing, speech therapy, my spelling, and all the issues uh, that led me uh, to ask my mom, what, what, what's going on with me? And she said, where did you find those files? I said, you left them out. And she said, well, you have something called dyslexia. And she never wanted to stigmatize me with it. She didn't share that with me. And I'll be candid with you, I just assumed everybody was going after school to get some remedial help or had summer programs to learn how to read, not realizing uh, that I was struggling with this and not all of my classmates were. And so one in five people uh, have some form of language-based learning disabilities, and many have the support uh, that I receive, but most don't. And I really wanted to highlight that and make the point uh, that it is not a liability. And if we get enough early screening done, if we get the kind of intervention that's, uh, that, it, that could produce the kind of results to give people some confidence and self-esteem, that it will turn out to be one of the best things that ever have happened to a young child, to have a difference that allows you to develop skills uh, that you never otherwise could. And so this is a book about uh, my journey, composite, my journey with uh, uh, a little bit of uh, my personal history with baseball, where I had confidence on the baseball diamond, none in the classroom, and uh, a book we hope provides a little confidence and hope to people that are struggling. Yeah, and Governor, of course, it's one thing to be, you know, in school as a student learning to kind of cope with dyslexia. It's quite another to be governor of a state like California. I'm just wondering, what are some of the things you do as, you know, governor, as a person now that, you know, may be affected by your dyslexia? What do you, how do you compensate? What do you do differently? Yeah, and it's the right question because it doesn't go away. Um, and let me give a proof point. 
not only did I struggle reading as a kid, I, I struggle with it today. I don't read speeches. I've, I've, you've never seen me read a speech. If you have, uh, you probably started texting uh, and phoning someone out of boredom. Uh, and, and the few times that I've tried, it's gone horribly wrong. When I was mayor, I tried a few times. I can't do it. As governor, I've never read a speech with one exception. And that's a teleprompter speech that I need to do once a year that I practice for 100 hours uh, and do a mediocre job communicating. And that's what teleprompter at State of the State. And interestingly, I do it with an open dyslexic font. Um, and that same open dyslexic font I've included uh, in this picture book for children. It just helps me a little bit. Look, it's difficult. Spelling's impossible. Uh, the speech therapy uh, really worked. And I didn't realize, you know, I found all these old files that I remember seeing as a kid, and my sister had them. My mom passed away about 18, 19 years ago. And my, I asked my sister, do you still have those files? And she found them all. And it's so remarkable. The issues that are present in my life today were present when I was six, seven, eight years old. And so you find ways to overcompensate. But here, forgive me, so be so long-witted. Here, here's the punchline. The overcompensation is where you develop a muscle that many, other don't, many people don't have. You have a higher average of visual memory. Your ability to problem solve and reason. There's things that are connected, and we know neurologically the brain is different for dyslexics. And there's a reason why so many creatives are dyslexic, so many entrepreneurs are dyslexic. And it's wonderful to be in the ranks of Steven Spielberg and Robin Williams uh, and people, even you know, Tom Cruise is a celebrity and Cher, but also remarkable leaders like Churchill, all dyslexic that had to overcompensate and in that overcompensation found strengths they never otherwise would have. Are there things you do that, you know, people may, may annoy people, but which you do because you have dyslexia or that people may not understand? Like I noticed when you do a budget presentation, you go on for a very long time with an incredible amount of detail. A lot of memorization. It's, uh, I need to do that. And I say that selfishly. Uh, I don't do that for you. In fact, quite the contrary. You just made the point. I go on and on and on. I don't think it's particularly effective. But it's important to me because what I'm trying to do is master the subject matter. And what I'm, do, what I'm doing is what I've had to do my whole life. And I've said this all my life. I, I realized I wasn't dumb. I thought most of my life that I was dumb. I think I was in my 30s when I realized I wasn't as dumb as I thought I was. And that's a dyslexic reality. Uh, and I realized dyslexia is not intelligence, and intelligence manifests in many different ways. But one thing that I did know, and the one thing I was really proud of, I had grit. I had resilience. I will outwork you. I'll just outwork you. And I always had that. And I had to have that. And so when it comes to the budget, that's just me working. That's me sort of developing a muscle. It's a skill. I don't want to dial that in. I'm, I'm learning as I'm going. That's hundreds of hours of preparation. By the way, I've already spent 30 or 40 hours on the next budget. You can uh, tell us about it now if you know. <laughs> but it's just important to me in the precision. I know I torture you guys, and, and I torture the public. Cause, and I, I, I always try to correct myself. No one cares about stats and facts, but I need to say it because it, it hones my it, it's a way of sharpening my focus, and it makes me know. It's a way of communicating to myself that I'm on top of the subject matter. I'm not being lazy. So when I say last year, I'll give you an example, our budget this year, Prop 98 budget for education, is $123.9 billion. That .9 matters to me because if I don't have that, I'm not confident in the rest. 
All right. Um, before we let you go, Governor, we, as we said at the top, are going to be uh, talking to Attorney General Rob Bonta in just a minute. He, of course, was appointed by you earlier this year. As you know, there's a lot of debate right now over criminal justice reform and policy, a lot of attention on retail theft and other burglaries. You've supported a lot of those uh, reforms, as has Attorney General Bonta. How are you thinking going into 2022 about making the case to voters not to turn back those reforms? Because I think a lot of folks where you said do not think that they are the reason for this uptick in crime. I'll say two things. What's happening with crime is unacceptable, period, full stop. We need to hold people accountable. We can't sugarcoat this. This is serious. It's real. We can see it with our own eyes. It's unacceptable, period. Uh, and so that's a fact, and that's why I established uh, last July, we announced with 13 big city mayors, a retail theft task force. Uh, we've been on top of this for some time. We're going to quadruple down on that in next year's budget, uh, and I've never been one, and you guys have followed me for decades, where I was increasing policing, uh, increasing academy classes. I've never been on that defund police movement. I've been a reformer, but not on the defund, and there's a distinction there. That said, uh, we are going to do more as a state to support cities and counties and the prosecution and accountability. Uh, that said, it's important to note some fundamental facts. The reforms that people are attaching animus towards, uh, one in particular, Prop 47, occurred in 2014. Crime dropped in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. By the way, that reform was not unique and novel. 39 states, 39 states, almost 40 states in this country, since 2000, reformed their felony status. California, if you include Vermont, which is $50 less than California, but if you include Vermont, 31 states are equivalent to California. By the way, Texas is a $2,500 felony status. Interestingly, they have higher violent crime rates in California, higher property crime rates than California. By the way, violent crime in California increased 0.8% last year, 5% nationwide. And it's important to look at murder rates happening disproportionately in red states, Montana, South Dakota, uh, states like Kentucky with high murder rates. And by the way, in closing, I'll just make one final point. This is not to excuse what's going on. Again, we need to do more and better and hold people accountable. But the murder capital of California is not L.A. or San Francisco. It's Kern County with a Republican D.A., Republican sheriff, with you, you know, minority leader Kevin McCarthy in the backyard, a Republican mayor of Bakersfield. So I think there's a, a laziness attaching smash mouth, flash mob, retail theft rings and organized crime and somehow attaching that what's happening at Walgreens and Safeway, which is real, and somehow attaching Prop 47 to it. I think yeah. that is frankly a little misleading, and I think we as journalists, as politicians, and members of the public owe ourselves a little bit of objectivity of the facts, but the feelings are real, and the reality must be confronted. Well, that, and, and as you know, as a politician better than most, that uh, you, know, you can c- cite all the statistics you want to say crime is down or it's down historically, but if people don't feel safe... And I'm just curious, like, so how, what, what do you recommend to Democrats who are going to you know, potentially be on the defensive over this? Well, you just own it. We Look, we, we should own the fact that going into the pandemic, we had some of the lowest crime rates in, in California's history. We should own up to the fact that right now, this nation, not just California, you've seen these organized retail thefts uh, in Minnesota and Chicago and other uh, parts of the country. You've seen big crime increases in red states, as I said, uh, violent crime, property crime, larcenies, uh, higher in states like Texas. They're real. 
And all of us have to come to grips with that. It's not unique to California, but these smash-mouth, high-profile recent crimes are. And so we've got to see more police presence. We need to see more uniform police presence. Uh, We are providing more data collection on a regional basis that we've got more CHP officers out there on the roads. They're supplementing a lot of the local efforts. It was good to see what Oakland's doing with more academy classes. Uh, We put a record amount of money up called uh, something called CalVIP for violence intervention. I went from $9 million a year ago to $200 million this year, but it's not enough. I'm going to do more still. Uh, And I say this often, I'm not the mayor of California, but I'm feeling like I need to be more mayor right now as governor to support the mayors and the prosecution of these folks. I can't stand it. Uh, It is unacceptable seeing boarded up uh, parts of our city, beautiful, beloved San Francisco, to see these boarded up uh, retail outlets, including, by the way, my businesses. It's not acceptable. And so Democrats need to step up. Republicans as I said, Kern County is a perfect example. Texas, another statewide example, need to step up. We all do. And stop scapegoating and stop making this damn political. It's about all of us. And, uh, and all of us have a responsibility uh, to meet this moment. And uh, I certainly uh, want to be among them. All right. Governor Gavin Newsom, author of Ben and Emma's Big Hit. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, today. Governor. Great to be with you guys. Look forward to what Rob has to say. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by California Attorney General Rob Bonta. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today, we are thrilled to have Attorney General Rob Bonta. He was appointed to the post this past spring following nine years in the legislature. Attorney General, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. Honored to be with you. Well, we want to talk, you know, we talked with the governor about uh, some of the stuff in the news, but we want to talk about your life first. We haven't had you on the show to talk about your bio. You were actually born in the Philippines to a Filipino mother and an American father. Why were they back in the Philippines? I think they had met here in the States, right? They had met here in the States in Berkeley at the Pacific School of Religion, and they went to the Philippines. My um, homeland for my mother, uh, the place of her birth and where she was raised until she was 28 years old and went to the United States for the first time to serve as missionaries, to serve, uh, to help others, to lift other people up. Hmm. And, and they were both politically active. Uh, tell us a bit about, uh, you know, your dad, Warren, uh, and some of his involvement in civil rights. 
my father as a grad student was involved in the civil rights movement. He had a, a friend who was in Selma, Alabama, who was taking audio cassette recordings of this incredible leader talking about justice in a fairer society and sending those audio cassettes back to my father who tore open the package, listened and heard the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. And he felt called to action to go to Selma to be part of the transformative change that was happening. And he did. He jumped on a train, uh, rode for three days to be there. He met Stokely Carmichael. He was in church with Martin Luther King Jr. And he organized for civil rights and, and voting rights. And when he came back to Berkeley, uh, he did the same, uh, organizing for voting rights and um, civil rights right here in, in the East Bay. So you were only in the Philippines, I, as I understand it, for a couple of years. Do you remember any of that? Were you too little? I was too little. I parents brought me back to brought me to California to rebuild our lives when I was two months old. So oh wow! Months, okay, <laughs> I, not the clearest uh, memories as a two month old, um, and uh, uh, it was because of the rise to power of Ferdinand Marcos, his uh, declaration of martial law, exactly a year after I was born, um, that my parents decided to um, bring me to California. Did you go back at all? Have you gone back? I have multiple times as a, as a child, uh, as a teenager, uh, right before law school, uh, as an assembly member, uh, visiting my relatives often uh, when I'm there, staying with them usually um, uh, before I was an assembly member. Um, my, my mother's side of the family is, is still there. So I know that you live part of your early life after you, you came back uh, in the Central Valley. Your mom was working for farm workers rights. Your dad was setting up health clinics. Do you, what do you remember from that time? And I, I think you were like living in a trailer, right? Because this was how organizers lived alongside farm workers. We did. We lived in the headquarters of the United Farm Workers of America. Uh, we lived in La Paz. We lived in a trailer. My family of five. My brother was actually born in Bakersfield while we were there, while my parents were serving the movement. They were each getting $5 a week for their service. Uh, my dad worked in the front office with Cesar Chavez, my mom in the preschool. Dolores Huerta was there. Uh, the great Filipino-American leader, Philip Veracruz, mm -hmm. was there. We would host him in our trailer uh, for Filipino breakfast when he would come for meetings. So uh, they were right in the middle of... Uh, one of the greatest civil rights and social justice movements in the history of our country. You know, now that you're uh, grown up and you're AG, that's a great story. It's a great memory. But I'm wondering if when you were a kid, did you ever wonder, like, you know, or say, I just wish I had, like, quote, unquote, normal parents who were around all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it was normal for me. It, it was all I knew. So, uh, you know, uh, I grew up at rallies and demonstrations and protests. And um, I remember my mom organized for the restoration of democracy in the Philippines after Fernand Marcos took power and, and had his dictatorship. I, I spent Christmas, um, the days leading up to Christmas, singing Christmas carols with my mom and her community activist friends to raise money uh, for the restoration of democracy movement. So uh, that, that's all I knew. And, and uh, you know, as a young kid, you, you always trust your parents unconditionally. And I always believed in what they did. I was proud of them thankful for their work. And as I grew older, I appreciated it even more. And now, uh, as an adult, I want to carry on their legacy. I wonder if you ever uh, at all felt caught between the cultures. Um, I feel like, you know, when we were growing up, there wasn't a lot of talk of being mixed race, but that's what you are. And and I just wonder, like, how that has been going back to the Philippines or, or being here in California. Yes. Uh, you know, being, being biracial um, is... Uh, unique and, and, and a unique experience, sometimes caught between uh, two worlds, two cultures. Uh, uh, but for me, always something I, I've been comfortable with, um, my identity, who I are, who I am, who my mom is, who my father is, and, you know, who my brother and sister are as, as well. And, you know, I grew up in a, a suburb of Sacramento from first grade through high school. It was not uh, very diverse. 
Um, I, there were six Filipinos in, in my high school. Uh, three of them were me, my brother, and my sister. Uh, the other three were another set of siblings. And, and, and so um, definitely challenging, uh, of course, especially being of color in a place that's mostly not of color. Well, and in that regard, you went to Yale Law School, uh, which uh, I would imagine, especially back then, did not have a lot of people who weren't white. Um, you know, what was that like for you? Was it was it a kind of culture shock, not just in terms of racially, but, you know, just the whole thing? You have kids from really privileged backgrounds and so on. And East Coast. <laughs> yeah, all, all that, all that. Thank you. And I first went to Yale College as a 17-year-old, and, um, and that was very different, being on the East Coast, being around um, folks uh, with wealth, with multi-generational wealth, many from private schools. I was a public school kid from California, uh, uh, you know, a Filipino-American public school kid from California at that. There were not very many Filipinos. Um, the students of color um, hung out with each other and, uh, you know, including that's where, that's where I met my wife, Mia, uh, Puerto Rican from the Bronx. We met as 17 year old, um, students, uh, in an orientation program, um, before school even started at Yale. And, and to your point about Yale law school, it was, was, it's the same, but very small law school actually. Um, so you get to know most of your classmates, but the students of color spent time with one another, uh, supported each other, shared, um, you know, stories about resources and opportunities, among them, Cory Booker, the class above me, and Stacey Abrams, the class below me. So uh, I was around some uh, amazing leaders and uh, proud and thankful for their friendship. Yeah, that's like a bragging rights now, right? Stacey Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Mia Bonte, your wife, who's now uh, holds your assembly seat that, that you stepped down from. Um, but I want to talk about the work you're doing now, because there's a clear bridge between the work your parents did and a lot of, you know, the the work you did as a lawmaker around especially criminal justice reform. But now you're the top cop, right? Um, I guess to start, like, how has that transition been going from somebody who was writing the laws and often on the outside of law enforcement to being on the inside? You know, there's big differences in terms of uh, the movement from the legislature to the executive branch in the legislature. You can do anything, but you need many other people to agree with you before you can actually accomplish it. And, and it's sort of the opposite in the executive branch. Um, you uh, are limited by the existing laws and implementing and enforcing those, uh, but you can move unilaterally in in, in that work. So um, it, it's been an adjustment for sure, but the, the mission has not changed. The values have not changed. And there's actually much more scope and ability and reach to accomplish um, uh, the goals. And so, um, you know, my my values and my priorities as a legislator continue to be my values and my priorities as, a, as the attorney general. And that includes uh, criminal justice reform, keeping our communities and neighborhoods safe as we uh, always uh, seek to be more fair and more just, housing, uh, protecting our tenants, creating more housing throughout the state of California and, and many other areas. You, of course, now as the attorney general, you have to deal with and listen to and work with uh, district attorneys and sheriffs, law enforcement officials up and down the state. And in the legislature, I would say probably they probably opposed a lot of the bills that you authored or voted for. We'll talk about that transition and how you've navigated that. There were times when some of those groups would support some of the bills I was working on, but you're right, oftentimes not. Um, so, you know, now it's right now it's it's a time to implement what I've always sought to do as a publicly elected official, which is to collaborate, cooperate, work together, seek and find common ground uh, while we may not agree 
on everything. We agree on many things and we can work on those things together. And I've been going up and down the state working with our uh, law enforcement partners to uh, identify that the biggest challenges and to see how we can overcome them and move forward together. So I, I appreciate the uh, important work to keep our community safe of our uh, brave men and women in uniform and whenever we can work together to um, accomplish uh, our common goals, uh, we do. Well, let's talk about some of those issues uh, that you're facing and DAs and police chiefs around the state, which is made a lot of headlines. Uh, take, for example, the retail thefts. Um, we just talked to the governor. He talked about increasing kind of help resources to cities and counties. Um, I, I want to ask you, like, how are you thinking about and what can the state do to do that? Because some of you know, the things the governor might be alluding to fly in the face of some of the reforms that both of you have have actually supported. So what's the balance here and what can law enforcement and government actually do on this issue? Let me first say I really appreciate the governor's leadership on this. His uh, CHP task force, we're a member of that task force, uh, bringing folks together to address this this common challenge. Uh, his um, deployment of resources to places where they're needed most. And you know, there, there's a lot of different ways to to address this challenge. So to me, it's it's uh, you know all of the above approach, and um, you know to try to address it from the different angles. Certainly, when we can do investigations and prevent the uh, organized retail theft from happening in the first place, which by the way is is awful, unacceptable, and these are uh, felonies. Uh, to be absolutely clear, uh, you know, burglary, grand theft, robbery. Uh, organized retail crime under California statutes. Um, when we can arrest on site, we should. Uh, we know that uh, catching uh, violators of the law is the best way to deter. And and then when we're not able to make those arrests on site, uh, on, when the uh, crime occurs, then we conduct investigations like the one we announced last Friday, which was uh, as the sentencing and one of the largest organized uh, retail crimes in the history of California, $8 million worth of product uh, that was being resold for profit. Um, and we sentenced uh, the uh, the ringleader to six years in prison. So that's an organized retail theft. I think that's sort of an easy one. But what about, you know, maybe young kids, teenagers who saw this and took advantage of it? I mean, should from your usage, are, should those people be prosecuted to the full extent of the law as well? Um, isn't that sort of flying in the face of a lot of the work that you and others have done to make to bring less people, particularly brown and black men, into the criminal justice system. What we're seeing and what people are talking about right now with respect to the, the brazen thefts that were occurring right before the Thanksgiving holiday, th those are organized. Those are organized criminal activities uh, involving you know up to 80 people with weapons planned, acting in concert. Uh, with, under the law, you aggregate the total amount. That, that is being stolen. So, so you're you're clearly in the in the felony area. Uh, you know, if if we're talking about shoplifting or a child taking candy from a, a candy store, then you know we we have laws that provide the appropriate uh, consequences to the, for the appropriate conduct, and there it's, it's lesser, of of course, for for a child, uh, for a, a a lesser offense, for a lesser amount uh, of property stolen. So. Um, you know, we have enough tools in the toolbox now to use to address the, the organized criminal uh, retail uh, crime that we're seeing. 
and um, we should be using those, and we are. I know, Attorney General Bonta, you are opposed to the death penalty, um, as were your two predecessors in the in that office. Um, there was a state committee re- that has recently recommended um, reducing the number of condemned inmates on death row. There's almost 700 of them. Uh, there's some thought about uh, negotiating reduced sentences, allowing district attorneys so inclined to do that, like George Gascon in L.A. What are your thoughts about that? My thoughts are that... I'm personally am against the death penalty. Uh, that's clear. That's I, I supported a, a constitutional amendment to end the death penalty in California. I think it's wrong for California. It's uh, I think inhumane. It's um, fallible and irreversible at the same time, and you can't be both. It has a racially disparate impact on Black and Brown communities, and it doesn't deter. So I, I think there's a lot of problems with it. Uh, and I'm the chief law uh, officer of the state of California. Uh, my job is to implement and enforce uh, the law of the state. And so I'm very interested in um, the, the uh, committee's uh, proposal and identifying ways where we might work together within the scope of my uh, obligations and duties. So does it seem like basically you would support looking for ways to reduce some of those sentences to, and convert them to you know, life without the possibility of parole? I, I think we're appropriate, including things like um, mental incompetency um, and other, uh, other uh, potential resentencings consistent with the law. Uh, so where, where possible and consistent with the law, yes. All right. We only have a couple minutes left. Uh, we like to end on a fun note. Any good holiday plans? Anything? Do, do they let you like go home and celebrate with your family now that you're the top cop? <laughs> uh, they do. They do. I, I am uh, honored and grateful to have this privilege of a lifetime serving as California Attorney General. But um, my most important titles are always going to be dad and husband. Husband to Mia Bonta, dad to uh, Reina, Ileana, and Andres. And um, the hardest part of the job is striking the right balance, being the dad and husband I want to be and being the AG uh, I want to be for the people of California. And part of that is finding time in, in the holidays uh, spent together. I call it mutual stand down time when no one wants to hear from me. And, uh, and, we'll, and I spend time with my family. So I'm awesome. All right, Attorney General, thank you so much for your thank time you. today. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Before we say farewell, we want to say goodbye to our amazing colleague, Katie Orr. She is leaving KQED tomorrow. Katie, we love you. You've been a great colleague. We can't wait to see what you do next. Absolutely. And uh, we want to wish you all the best in your new adventure in Sacramento. We're going to miss you, and hopefully we'll see you as well. All right. Our producer here at Political Breakdown is Guy Marzarotti. Our engineer, Katie McMurrin. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me at M Lagos. Have a good weekend. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.